Welcome to the King's Anywhere podcast, inspirational teaching, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whenever you're ready. Um, so this morning we have come to the end of our series on the, the armour of God. Uh, sorry, we haven't, there's one more. We've come to the penultimate... <laughs> <laughs> talking our series on the on the armour of God uh, and I hope I don't spoil the ending now uh, anyway um, so what I'm going to do before I uh, make any more faux pas is I'm just going to read from Ephesians 6 the, the verses that we've been looking at so this is Ephesians 6 10 to 20 feel free to, to read along it says finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power Put on the full armour of God so that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So this, of course, is the Apostle Paul and he's writing a letter to the Ephesian church. And I love the way that Paul closes this. He's literally in chains. His situation couldn't really be much worse. And what does he ask for prayer for? to fearlessly declare the gospel. I think it really speaks of Paul's faithfulness. Yes, that his first thought isn't to ask for a change of circumstances, ask for them to pray for his freedom, but to pray for courage to advance the kingdom. More than that though, Paul knows perhaps better than anybody in the whole world at this time that actually nothing will change a situation, nothing will change his situation like speaking the gospel into it like boldly proclaiming the good news of the risen Jesus because the gospel is powerful. The gospel changes lives, it changes situations, it changes circumstances. So Paul isn't asking them, pray this situation changes, then waiting around for it to happen. Instead, he recognizes that he's in those chains, armed with, equipped with the one thing, the most powerful thing that's really going to change you. And he's saying, pray, I have the courage to use it. Pray that instead of giving in to despair or scrabbling around for my own solution to this problem, that I can fearlessly declare the gospel, even, in fact, especially here. I wonder how many things in our lives and in the lives of people around us we would see shift, how many impossible-looking situations would start to change if when we ask people to pray for us, when we prayed for one another, we prayed that in the midst of those situations they would have the courage to fearlessly declare the gospel there. Because the gospel... Is powerful. So we arrived this morning at the, the last piece of the, the sort of Roman armour uh, that Paul paints us a picture of in this passage. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God, which is the gospel. John's gospel, it's nearly Christmas, so we can talk about this. John's gospel opens like this. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And skipping ahead to verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So in the passage from John's gospel, the word that we have translated as word is in the original Greek, logos. So logos is is sometimes hard to convey fully uh, exactly what it means. It doesn't necessarily have a direct translation in English. So Darren's advice is that the best commentary on the Bible is, of course, the Bible. So Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So Jesus, the word of God, is the ultimate communication and revelation of God to us. The exact representation of his being because he is himself God, the second person of the Trinity. God's character, his heart, his majesty, his power, his authority, his compassion, his desire to save, his love is revealed to us most completely in Jesus. The word becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us. Jesus himself in turn is then revealed to us through the word of God we find in the Bible. So if you want to encounter Jesus, read the Bible. If you want to have a revelation from God, read the Bible. Taking hold of the sword of the Spirit is not merely an encouragement just to read the Bible. It is an invitation into that ongoing relationship with Jesus. Now, I'm not sure which Bible version you read. I don't, don't get too caught up on that. Um, I read from the NIV. And uh, there's a slightly unfortunate grammatical quirk of the NIV uh, with its translation into verse 18. That means you can miss some of the emphasis that Paul is, is putting here. Now, in Paul's original Greek letter, there would have been little or no punctuation, not because he was bad at it like I am, just because it wasn't really part of the, part of the language. Um, and then the verse numbers that we have weren't added until around about the 16th century. So when Paul says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions and with uh, all kinds of prayers and requests, it's not intended to be a separate instruction to taking up the sword of the Spirit. He isn't moving on from talking about the armor of God to talking about prayer. He's imploring us to put on the full armor of God, take hold of the sword of the Spirit, and pray. Because as he makes clear in verse 12, this isn't physical armor that we wear. This is armor that we have for a struggle that takes place in the heavenly realms. How do we engage with that struggle? Through prayer. Prayer in the Spirit at all occasions and with all sorts of prayers. So on all occasions, the good days the bad days, the busy days, the working days, resting days, the days where you really, really feel like praying, the days where you really don't, the days where you're busy, pray together, pray on your own. And with all sorts of prayers, they can be long prayers, they can be short prayers, they can be periods of time where you're just sat in prayer listening to God. They can be prayers of thanksgiving, they can be prayers of lament, supplication and petition. Pray in English, pray in whatever language comes most naturally to you, pray in tongues. Because we are invited into a relationship with the living God and prayer is how we get the immense and awesome privilege to talk to and hear from him. 
Because we have a struggle, and the struggle is real. I'm not sure how you picture the armour of God. Sometimes I think we can be, be lulled into thinking that actually this is some sort of ceremonial dress. Like it's a uniform we're going to wear for a parade. And that one day we'll arrive in heaven and our armour will be immaculate and gleaming. As will become apparent, I'm no military historian, but I'm going to take a guess that after a Roman soldier had worn their armour in battle, it wasn't spotlessly clean. In fact, if it was, I think their commander would have probably had a few questions to ask. There's a reason we need armour. And it's for protection. Because we have an enemy and he will come for you. And the more you step out, the more you try to push back those powers and principalities, the more you try to advance the kingdom, the more he'll come for you and the more ruthless he will get. Why would we need armour if we weren't going to need protection from an enemy? Why would we need a sword if there wasn't going to be a battle? Now, once again, I'm no expert in Roman military tactics, but I know enough to know that a sword is an individual weapon. It's for sort of close quarters, hand-to-hand battle. In fact, the Roman sword that they used was called the gladius. So think gladiator, as in the Colosseum, not spandex in the 90s. Um, it, was a, <laughs> it was a really, get the right image in your head, it was a really short blade, probably only, only around about 45 centimetres. It's intended for one-to-one fighting close quarters with an enemy that had got really up close and personal. What's interesting, though, is that it was never intended for a Roman soldier to fight on their own. Their tactics were such that as much as possible, they would never try to engage one-on-one. Even when their lines were broken, they trained to fight, to go into battle as a unit, taking it in turns to surge forward and fall back and covering one another. So sometimes we will face challenges collectively, won't we? Either as this church or the church as a whole. Sometimes we will face challenges individually or as, little, as nuclear family units. Regardless, whatever it is, we get to face them together as a family on mission, covering each other's backs. The thing is, on our own is exactly how the enemy wants to come for us. Alone, isolated, vulnerable. So what does Paul say? He says, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Be alert. Like 1 Peter 5.8 reminds us, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And keep praying for all the Lord's people. You know, there's no better way to counter the, the, the threat, and it is a threat to us, of disunity within the church and to avoid isolation that, that often follows that and makes us an easy target than by prayer and by praying for each other. It's really hard to fall out with someone that you are consistently praying for, even if you disagree. Like Darren talked about a couple of weeks ago, Roman soldiers' armour, their shields were intended to provide protection to them individually, yes, but when they came together as a unit, they could provide protection for, for the group. I had to go and Google what a bat think was after that one. Still not sure. So, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the Gospel, the living Word of God made flesh, and pray. There's something unique about the sword as the part of the armour, though, isn't there? All the other pieces of armour are what you would, or what would be considered passive protection. It's primarily for the protection of the wearer, and you don't really need to do anything with it to protect yourself. Once you put a helmet on, it's going to start doing its job regardless of what you do. The sword, though, is a weapon. Its primary function is to inflict a blow. It is so important, then, that we understand what Paul means when he talks to us about why we put on this armour. 
He says, so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our struggle is not. It is not in the past. It is not now, nor will it ever be against flesh and blood, against people, against each other. Put simply, we are not in a battle, we are not fighting against people, but for them, for their salvation. Against the schemes and plans of the devil, against things like injustice, poverty, exploitation, against the lies and mistruths that people have been led to believe about themselves and about one another. It's not to inflict pain, but to bring healing. It's not to sit in judgment, but to gently and lovingly point people towards the truth of who they are in Christ. Not to seek power, but to be humble servants of the gospel. Taking up the sword of the Spirit is an admonishment from the Apostle Paul to to speak the truth of the gospels into people's lives to build them up. It is not permission to use scripture to tear them down. It's to do exactly what Paul asks the Ephesians to do, to pray for him, to do in his situation, to bring the power of the gospel to bear, to inflict a blow on and only on the kingdom of darkness. Jesus, the incarnate living word of God, inflicts the decisive and final blow when through his cross and resurrection he conquers death itself and enables us to live free. It's kind of, there might be some sort of, you know, that's, that's good news, that. That's good <laughs> As a result of this, Jesus tells us in John 16, 11, that the ruler of this world now stands condemned. We sang about this stuff before, didn't we? The battle belongs to the Lord. We had, we had words about it. Interesting, isn't it, that Jesus refers to the devil as the ruler of this world? Not because he has some high status, but it serves to us, I think, as a reminder that not everything that sets itself up as a power and authority, not everything that takes power and authority over our lives is legitimate or good. The devil is defeated. But he remains dangerous. Ultimately, one day when Jesus returns, the enemy will be able to harm us no more. But until then, we have the full armor of God. We have the sword of the spirit. We have our relationship with the God who the battle belongs to. And we have our fellowship with each other for our protection. Before Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he goes into the wilderness. And there he is tempted by the devil. This is Matthew's account. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days and nights. Obviously, he's incredibly hungry. By this point, his stomach would have, would have shrunk. Physically, what he needs is a sort of very thin soup or a broth or, or something like that. If he had turned those stones into bread and eaten sort of heavy, stodgy, starchy bread, his stomach wouldn't have been able to handle it and it would likely have killed him. I think this is a really terrifying picture of what sin does. It offers us what we think we need in a moment. It says, look, this is the way to life, but then only, ultimately, leads to death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what does Jesus do? He pushes back with the word of God. He's standing firm on the authoritative word of God, and he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. So the devil tries, again, this time he even tries to twist 
scripture to come at Jesus. The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. That's Psalm 91. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy again, 6.16. Notice how the devil uses scripture and he twists it out of context and uses it to try and bring harm. That, that can be done. People can do that. When we talk about the sword of the spirit being the gospel, I think it's really important that we have that in mind because if you're truly bringing the gospel to someone, you can't do harm with it. What the devil is trying to get Jesus to do here is jump off the top of the temple and have the angels arrest his fall so that he lands sort of gracefully and gently in the middle of a really busy marketplace in Jerusalem, causing a real big stir and really catching people's attention. Imagine the stir that would cause. Imagine how easy it would be for people to decide to follow Jesus after he'd done that. What he's trying to do is he's trying to steer Jesus off the more difficult path of enjoying the, re- the rejection and the suffering of his earthly ministry and the cross by offering what seems to be an easy way instead of God's way. It's not too dissimilar to his original deception in Eden, pointing to the challenges and boundaries that come with following Jesus that God sets and trying to convince us that God doesn't have our best interests in mind or that because the road has suddenly become a little bit bumpy, this can't be the way that God intended. All designed to draw us away from the loving plans and purposes and presence of God. Jesus again strikes back with scripture, so the devil tries one final time. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. Jesus answers him there, Deuteronomy 6, 13. This exposes the truth about the enemy and it is simply this that he will promise things that he has no right to or intention of giving us jesus response each time to the devil's tempting is to hit back with scripture to hit back with the word of god he's so familiar that he's able to skillfully use it to rebuff him it sets an example of how we get to respond to the enemy with the word of god with the gospel. When the devil appears to tempt Jesus in the desert, he's really bold and brazen and blatant about what he's doing. More often than not, though, he comes more more subtly. But the response is the same, knowing the word of God, and not just knowing the word of God, knowing the God that is revealed through it. Knowing what scripture says about God and knowing God. Let me give you an example. It is one thing to know that the Bible says God loves you. It is a total other thing to have experienced that loving relationship by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's one thing to say, to know that the Bible says that God offers peace that surpasses all understanding that will guard your heart. It's another to have stood on that promise in triumph and in trials and make turning to God and seeking his peace your first response and then experiencing that peace that comes from the Holy Spirit. Taking hold of the sword of the spirit isn't just about reading and memorizing scripture. That's a good thing to do. It's about allowing God to be revealed through scripture. It's about allowing scripture to shape and form our identity, to underscore and define who we are and how we live our lives. So a little bit of practical advice. If you've got something that gives you a daily reading, it's a really good thing. It's a helpful way to do things. 
Don't just approach it as a tick box exercise. Pause with it. Take some time over it. Pray with it. Ask God to speak life and peace and joy into your heart and wisdom into your situation through it. So that the Bible isn't just words on a page or on a screen because the word of God is so much more than this. Isaiah 55, 8 to 11 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and snow come down from heaven, I do not return to it without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire, and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. The word of God is alive and active. When he speaks it out, it will not return to him empty. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is a potent, powerful weapon that is placed not just in our hands, but also intended to be placed on our hearts, with which we can push back against the powers and principalities, with which we can take ground for the kingdom. We can advance the gospel, which we, with which we can see salvation come and change come in our lives and the lives of everyone we meet. As we said before, as part of this series, that... that Paul is basing this imagery on the armour of a, of a Roman soldier. As a prisoner of Rome, he would have been surrounded by them, probably chained to one. In the Roman Empire, as the church that Paul wrote this to at the time was, Roman soldiers were everywhere. They were, uh, they were a sight that people were accustomed to seeing as part of their daily lives. They were there to enforce the rule of the empire, and they did it brutally, and they were ruthless. I think there's something in that image for us as well, not the brutal and ruthless part. See, we are scattered for most of the week, aren't we, amongst friends, family, colleagues, wherever it is that we, we spend, spend our week with the, the people that we pass in the street. Roman soldiers were everywhere in ancient society, society promoting the cause of the empire. We are sent into our society to promote the cause of the king of kings, not with weapons of war or oppression, but with the gospel. Now, to do their job effectively, a Roman soldier has to be skillful and adept at using their sword. So, too, the disciple with the sword of the Spirit. Now, a sword merely strapped to a Roman soldier's side was no guarantee of protection or victory. The same could be said of Scripture. Most of us these days carry a Bible around in our pockets. Whether you think that's a good thing or not, I, I, personally, for me, it works. Some of us have... Uh, still prefer the analog version I prefer it from time to time either way if this stays in my pocket or my printed bible stays on my shelf it's like a sheathed sword it's no good now it will shock you I'm sure to learn that I am not actually a skilled swordsman Uh, although for reasons that were never fully explained to me I was sent on a fencing instructor course Um, there is however one type of blade that I'm reasonably skilled at using and I better explain this quickly having said that now so this is a canoe paddle. And this end is the blade. Now, there aren't many things that I'm, that I'm good at, but I am pretty handy at using one of these. And obviously the boat goes with it, but that doesn't fit the analogy or into the building. So the paddle. The reason I am able to use this 
relatively well is that for a period of my life, there was pretty much not a day where I didn't have one of these in my hands, where I wasn't using it and patiently and persistently trying to develop my skills. Now, if I was to get into a boat, put one of these things in my hand, paddling a boat comes to me pretty much as naturally as anything else that I can do. That's not a brag, that's not a flex, it's just explaining that the more you do something, the more you do something persistently, the more naturally it comes to you. Rewind many, many moons to when I first picked up one of these, and in my hands it was really clunky. I couldn't quite use it to get the boat to do what I wanted to. I fell in a lot. If the wind blew particularly hard, I got blown away. If the river was particularly strong, I got washed away. It took time. It took regular use. It took consistent, persistent practice. The same was true of Roman soldiers with their swords. They trained for months before they were, uh, before they were sent out. They drilled regularly in the use of their sword. In fact, when they first began their training, they were actually given a mock sword that was twice the weight of the gladius that they would use in real life so that when the time came to put it to use, it wasn't clunky and awkward. It was natural. When Jesus is tempted by the devil, his response from Scripture comes naturally because he's steeped in it, he's studied it, he's absorbed it as much as he can. I wonder for you, how naturally does it come to speak the gospel into your life, into other people's lives, to bring scripture into conversations, to pray, to offer to pray for people? When you face a challenge or worry comes, is seeking God for his wisdom and peace your first move? When temptation comes, do you know what God says about the thing that's tempting you when doubt or shame or guilt come? Does the truth of who God says you are help you to stand firm in your identity in him? Let me give you another piece of practical advice. Quite often, have conversations with people and it starts something along the lines of, do you think it's okay if? Or do you think I should And personally, I think that's the wrong question. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus, the question we should be asking ourselves when we're faced with a choice about a situation is, will this make me like Jesus? I've got two options here. Option A, option B. Which one is going to make me the most like Jesus? And if we're going to do that, if we're going to develop that, we need to know Jesus. How do we get to know Jesus? Well, he's revealed to us through the word of God. So I want to finish this morning by doing what I've said, we're going to take hold of the sword of the Spirit and we're going to pray. Very simply, I'm just going to read some scriptures over us. I could read plenty. I could read the whole, the whole Bible, but you know, I really don't have time for that. These are the ones that, that, have, that have been put on my heart when I've prayed about this. And I just want to read them over us. And as uh, I'm reading them, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit, would you reveal to people where maybe some chinks have appeared in our armor? Would you reveal to people where there are things that you want to to stir up in us? Would you help us, Holy Spirit, to understand the truth of who you are and who we get to be in light of that? When you get your notes this week, these these are what's going to be in there, just these scriptures. And rather than have discussions and things, just read through them, reflect on them, and then pray. And then I'm going to read through these and then at the end I'm going to give an opportunity for prayer. If the Holy Spirit stirs something in you while, um, while I'm reading these, just come to the front and uh, I'll pray for you. And then I'm done. So Matthew 5, 11 to 16 says this. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. 
because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who, bef- who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith, and it is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. For we are Christ's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians two nineteen to 21. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. The whole, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I'm going to keep reading these. Holy Spirit, would you stir us? Would you speak to us through these, through these your words? Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Genesis 1, 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Psalm 62 Verses five to eight. Yes, my soul find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation, my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him for God is our refuge. Psalm 56, verses three to four. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust and I'm not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. Isaiah 2, 22. Stop trusting in mere humans who have put breath in their nostrils, why hold them in esteem? 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from your sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Galatians five twenty two to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Isaiah 40, 28 to 31. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. 
He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8.1-2, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free. From the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And finally, Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. If that's stirred something in you that, that you want prayer for, then please come and see me or come and see someone and we'll pray for you and we're, we're going we're gonna to come and worship now. As the, as the band come back, I'm just going to pray. Jesus, thank you so much that we have your word. Thank you so much that we have your gospel. Thank you that it is powerful. Thank you that it is given to us freely. And yet, it can have such a great effect on us. Thank you, Lord, that even though it's given to us freely, you were willing to pay everything for this good news, for this gospel. Holy Spirit, would you help us to take hold of your word? Would you help us to make it the thing that defines us? Would you help us to make it the thing that shapes us? And would you help us to have the words to speak and the actions to take to shine this light of your gospel into the lives of people around us that they would find your salvation and that they would be defined and find their identity and be shaped by you as well. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. To find out more about King's Church Warrington, visit our website or find us on Facebook and Instagram.